It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. If you are looking to develop a blind spot in your life, here's a simple recipe. Just mix fleshly anger, fear, and outrage into your soul and stir. Then voila, you will have yourself a wonderful blind spot. Hey, this is Eric. Before we dive into today's Daily Thunder message and begin exposing blind spots, I wanted to mention our upcoming training this summer. Starting on June 15th, Ellerslie is offering our very first online edition of our classic five-week discipleship training. And get this, we're offering it on a donation-only basis, which means there is absolutely no reason not to look into it and consider joining in on all the fun. Please visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now let's venture into the White House in the thick of World War II. President Franklin Roosevelt needs to make a critical decision for the safety of the United States of America. The name of this message is Roosevelt's Blind Spot. And for those grammaticians in here that know that there should be an apostrophe before the S, this particular font does not support that. And so <laughs> as a result, you're not seeing it. Uh, but Roosevelt's Blind Spot, this is uh, in a flow on World War II, we are uh, drawing out lessons uh, from World War II that explain to us the spiritual battle that we are in. It's been a very, very uh, profound process, but we are uh, right now in the early months of 1942, just if we were to look at it as a flow. I've popped around and jumped around uh, all over the place, but still I'm trying to restrain myself from giving away the ending uh, so that maybe none of you will find out uh, because I'm, I'm a true... Uh, purist in the desire to not read the final chapter. As an author, I don't like it when people just turn to the end of a book and read the, the, the giveaway at the end. I mean, come on, there's a whole point of writing the book up to that and it's to bait people. And, to, and that's what I'm trying to do, even though you technically could figure it out without much difficulty and probably most of you already know. But that's all part of the fun uh, of this. So we're in, actually, I think it's February uh, of uh, 1942 at this time. And the, the idea behind this is very intriguing in light of what has taken place in the past week in America. With the riots in Minneapolis, we had rioting in Denver, we see a, a deep residing uh, animosity that can easily be stirred up and easily reach a boiling point with little subtle things that can happen. And we saw that uh, this past week, uh, and we have issues in our country. We all know that, but they're deeper than just uh, political or, or spiritual. Uh, there's there's a lot of ideological, racial uh, things that are present, and so for us as Christians, how do we navigate through these things? It is very easy to be caught up in ideological warfare, in in political. Uh, banterings and lose Christian communication. Because there's, in, in Jesus's day, you see the same splits. You had Sadducees, you had uh, Essenes, you had Pharisees, and they were sharp divisions. They're all Israelites, but strange, or they're all, in this case, all Jews, uh, and they're, but they're splintered. And for us as Christians, how do we navigate through this in such a way where we bring life and love in the hope of the gospel, not just a political conclusion to the table. So Roosevelt's blind spot. Uh, I've, in some of my previous ones, I have actually given some, uh, some background into Roosevelt that would actually cause some of us that may not be pro-Rooseveltian to be like, huh, well, that's sort of interesting. I, I guess I sort of like the guy. This one will not be a good sales pitch, even though I'm not trying to give a you know, a jab at Roosevelt, it's actually a jab at all of us uh, as Americans. It's a blind spot that we can very easily have. So the fact that I'm uh, sticking it on Roosevelt's, you know, is sort of unfortunate for the guy. Uh, I'm going to call this the Romo rule. Uh, and for those of you that can see the screen, you see a picture of a, a football player that used to play for the Denver Broncos named Bill Romanowski. Now, if you were not a Bronco fan, you would have hated Bill Romanowski. Okay, Bill Romanowski was just a bad guy. And he would do like late hits and, you know, spearing was the term where you go in with your helmet straight in. And he would, you know, 
people would get injured because Bill Romanowski, when no one was looking, the cameras were somewhere else, would come in and do nonsense. You know, he's one of those guys that, you know, would stick his fingers sort of like the, uh, what, the Three Stooges, you know, into your eyes. He was just not a nice guy, okay? But if he's on your team, you sort of like him being on your team because he gets the job done. He's the guy, he's just sort of rough and ready, right? But it's interesting, and here's the principle I want to bring out. The home team, the Romo rule is the home team can more easily overlook its own failings than the failings of its opponents. It's, it was just a sort of a phenomenon because when Bill Romanowski got traded to the Oakland Raiders, who were like our nemesis as the Denver Broncos, it's really weird, but boy, was he disgusting. I can't stand Bill Romanowski. When he was our guy, I, I liked him. Well, you know, I, I can't say I liked his behavior, but I liked having him on my team. He got the job done. But when he was on a different team, I tell you what, all I could see were his failings. Okay, so there's a, I'm calling that the Romo rule. Uh, and we have a tendency to overlook the failings of our own country. When we get to World War II, it's very interesting because we can very easily study the failings of other countries. What Germany is going to do is so evil, so bad. What Italy is going to do, I mean, I cannot believe it. Italy, Mussolini, what are you thinking? The Japanese, did you see what they did? And so we can easily see the failings of other countries. And what's funny is I actually, World War II America, I'm impressed with. In a general sense, I'm like very impressed with how the American people responded. However, there's a kernel of something in there that I just want to poke at that could easily be in us as Christians. EO9066, how's that for communication? That's Executive Order 9066, and it was signed by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, February 19th, 1942. Now, just to give some perspective, December 7th, 1941, so just a couple months earlier, Pearl Harbor is bombed. Okay, so there's some serious sensitivity in and amongst the American people. And this is a people that were neutral. In fact, they did not want to have anything to do with the war. And now suddenly, they want war more than anyone else in the world. I mean, they are ready and raring to go because they are upset. So this is an interesting conclusion on this, but this is a broad statement because there have been a lot of civil rights violations in the United, in United States history. And yet, this one event was, is considered by many to be the single greatest civil rights violation in the history of the United States of America. And poor Roosevelt gets his name associated with it, right? So I'm not going to tell you what it was. I'm just going to leave it hanging. I will, but uh, you know that's a good story, right? You don't, I'm, you can't fast forward to the end of Daily Thunder if you're live, right? Some people, I could just see some people online though with the podcast, they're like fast forwarding trying to get to it. So I'm going to go through the Declaration of Independence real quick, just the second paragraph, and I want us to lift out a few concepts because our country is formed on better values than other countries. And it's and actually, if you study the Constitution, if you study the mindset behind the Founding Fathers, it's invigorating, it's life-giving, and yet we had blind spots. And that's the main thing I wanna say, is you could be true, you could be right, you could be in agreement with God and still miss certain things that can actually cause certain people to be harmed in your journey down the narrow way of the cross. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. All men are created equal. This is self-evident. It's obvious to all the founders uh, that this is true. That they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. An inalienable right, which I talked about actually yesterday in my Sunday sermon, is a right that cannot be transferred. It is possessed, but it is not something that can be given by the possessor. For instance, your lungs. You cannot just transfer your lungs. You own them, but you cannot give them away without dying, right? And someone can't take them from you without killing you. So as a result, they're an inalienable right. You have an inalienable right to your lungs. And so we have been given, according to the Declaration of Independence, this is not scripture, this is just a statement that this is self-evident, this is obvious to all, that all men are created equal and that they are given certain inalienable rights. And among these our life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. So why are governments instituted among men? To secure these rights. Not to rule over people, but to secure their rights and to preserve their rights. Deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new governments. 
laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. And you have to realize who's writing this. You have the, uh, the colonists who have, been, who have had their rights uh, encroached upon by King George III, and they're not happy about this. And they're saying, look, there comes a time when, that, when, when these dictatorial powers are overstepping their boundaries that those that are being encroached upon should form a new government, right? So if you were to take this logic into some certain history points in American history, you'd recognize there's a few people that have been stepped on in American history that could probably say, hey, maybe I should form a new government because you guys have encroached upon my rights. So in other words, just because the Declaration of Independence says it so right and says it so well doesn't mean they always keep it. And as a country, we have a great foundation, but that doesn't guarantee that we live it out. So Harriet Tubman, who's, our family loves Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman was like Leslie's childhood superstar. You know, this is like, was her hero. She wanted to be in the Underground Railroad. And uh, this is just a fascinating uh, thought process, okay? Here we are in this country that has written those words in the Declaration of Independence, yet we have a blind spot. And that blind spot was slavery. It was the treatment of African Americans, if you want to say it that way, uh, to sound politically correct even in how we phrase it. But she says, I grew up like a neglected weed, ignorant of liberty, having no experience of it. That's someone who lived in the United States, and yet she did not have the normal privileges of citizenship. So as a result, she wasn't afforded the luxuries of the protection of the American government. But here she is. She's in our country, but she doesn't have the luxuries of our country. And I would say this is a blind spot. Okay, now most of us know that in looking back on history. I don't think any of us are fighting to return to this treatment. And yet it's there and it was in front of us and the very people that formed our nation couldn't see it. It's a fascinating phenomenon. And the reason I'm bringing that up isn't to criticize our founding fathers. I'm very impressed with our founding fathers. I'm very impressed with our nation. I love our nation. I love our constitutional republic. I think it has so much potential and so much promise if we would keep it. However, it's very easy for people that are right to be wrong. And so the Pharisees are right. They were. You know what? The teachers of the law knew that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. They did. They even told the wise men that, you remember? Uh, and so they were correct, and they, they believed in the resurrection. Do you remember? The Sadducees didn't, but the Pharisees did. However, the Pharisees, though they were right, and if you were to look at their doctrine, you'd say, yes, 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 amen, yes, yes, and amen, and amen, amen. And yet, they were wrong. They missed the Messiah. And so how could you be so right and miss Jesus. That's what we don't want to do. In other words, because you have a biblical framework that is accurate does not mean you see the center of the Bible, which is Jesus and him crucified. There's a lot of people that have the Bible, but a lot of people miss Jesus. So Harriet Tubman, there's a book that comes out uh, which is uh, going to be very controversial in America, his, American history. It's Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. And so this is uh, Harriet Tubman's response to that book, which is very interesting. I've heard Uncle Tom's Cabin read, and I tell you, Mrs. Stowe's pen hasn't begun to paint what slavery is as I have seen it at the far south. I've seen the real thing, and I don't want to see it on no stage or in no theater. She's seen the real thing. This is like barbarous. The amount of, uh, the amount of crimes committed against this one people group are off the charts. And for those of us, remember the Romo rule? I'm just going to re reflect back on that. Because as Americans, we have a tendency to be defensive for America. In fact, I don't like it when, you know, the, the people out there criticizing us and how we handled the Native American Indians and how we handled the, the black people. It's like, come on, there are people out here that didn't do that too. That's the way we immediately want to respond. It's like, no, we're all not that way. And yet there's a kernel of vulnerability that we all carry. And so the fact that it can be said that we have racial problems in our country, I don't have racial problems. Just look at my family. If anyone wants to just look at my family picture, uh, you know, for our Christmas card, you're going to say, well, yeah, Eric probably doesn't have problems with that. In other words, it doesn't even, I don't even think about race. It's not even in my grid to evaluate something based on race. However, we have a racial problem in our country. It exists and if we ignore it and just try and, and walk past it, we actually oftentimes are throwing fuel on it. For us as Christians, 
we need to know how to live in such an hour. If you are uh, someone who doesn't have slaves back in early America, and you don't have a problem with, uh, with African Americans, you don't have an issue, you think they're valuable just like anyone else, but you still do nothing, in other words, there's a problem there, and that's part of what the history of World War II is gonna show us too. You know that there's 45 million Christians in Germany, Nazi Germany, 45 million. It's most of the entire country is Protestant Christian, and yet they're going to have the mistreatment of Jews at a level that is off the charts, so heinous, so nefarious, that it's never been seen in world history, and the Christians will do nothing. And so as a result, we can look at the Nazi blind spot or the German blind spot, but we need to see our own blind spot to be able to address blind spots. America's blind spot in 1776, well, it's slavery. That's, it's a blind spot, it just is. They're, they're talking about it's self-evident that all men are created equal. I mean, it's, self, it's obvious that, and we need to give them rights. We need to secure those rights. And yet the very people that are writing that, some of them violated that. And so it's, a, it's an ironic twist. Now, you'll notice the date is going to change on the far right here. America's blind spot in 1931. So I'm going to, this, the World War II is going to start in 1939. But America is going to be carrying around some baggage in 1931. Uh, that I think is just fascinating to look at from a German. Now remember, the Germans are going to have the biggest blind spot in history in, in the upcoming years. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer becomes a very interesting voice and perspective in this transition. Hitler is going to come into power in 1933. So this is 1931 that Dietrich Bonhoeffer is going to visit the United States. A 25-year-old German theology student named Dietrich Bonhoeffer first visits the United States for seminary studies in New York. This young man notices something in America that bothers him. There are many churches in New York that have veered liberal in their slant, having left preaching the centrality of Jesus Christ and making Christianity merely a social gospel. And when Christianity becomes a social gospel, oftentimes you are standing up for things like civil rights, right? But this same church that is veering liberal and is losing Jesus has a problem. And yet these same liberal churches seem to be overlooking the most obvious social crisis in the entire country that lies right beneath their noses. It's funny because a German from the outside can come in and see that we have an issue. We can't see our own issue. And that is the treatment of African Americans. Isn't that interesting that even in 1931, we had the Civil War, we had the Emancipation Proclamation back in the 1860s. Haven't we dealt with this? It's latent just like it is now. In other words, we have a long history in our country, and in a sense, we inherit it, generation after generation. And even though someone like Eric Ludy could say, I don't, have, I don't even think about race, it's still a latent issue, and we as the church have to know how to properly address it. So here we are in 1931, and it's still an issue. Listen to what it says. Bonhoeffer is shocked by the complete lack of response on the part of the American church to this travesty, for he witnesses the African-American being treated as less than human. How could this be? This is his thought. How could this be? In a nation that talks so much about brotherhood, peace, and love, how could such a massive social contradiction exist without hardly a whisper of concern in response? It's, it's very interesting being a white, middle-class Christian male puts me in a very awkward category uh, in modern America because basically I have no voice uh, to say anything on social issues. And oftentimes I can even begin to think that I am being sequestered into a, a little crowd like, well, you have no voice because look who you are. And so I can get upset about that and feel like there's some kind of racial prejudice towards me, right? It's bait. Now, I don't fall for it. I don't really even care about those types of things, but I could see how those types of things can happen. And yet this is so obvious. I mean, my, the treatment of Eric Ludi, you know, really not that bad, okay, in the whole scheme of things. I get far more mistreatment from Christians because of my strong stance for Christianity than I do from anyone else, right? That's where I get most of my havoc. And so I can understand why Dietrich Bonhoeffer would be struggling, coming over to our country and seeing what looks like a tremendous contradiction. Listen to what he is going to say back then. It's 1931, 
still two years prior to the rise of Adolf Hitler in Germany. And at this time, Bonhoeffer remarks that this disturbing issue of racial prejudice in America is not present in Germany. Remember the Romo rule? In other words, he cannot see. Now, all the way from the end of World War I, which is going to end in 1918, there is going to be a a stirring, a bubbling beneath the surface of Germany, and it is called the stab in the back theory, that the Germans are convinced that they would have won the war if it had not been for liberal communists and for the Jews who betrayed them in Germany. And so where you're going to see Hitler uh, come up with his entire ideology, he's going to actually begin to craft an idea of paying back the Jews long before he comes into power in 1933. Racial prejudice does exist in Germany. Dietrich Bonhoeffer doesn't see it. Does that make sense? In other words, it's the Romo rule. There is a latent uh, angst in Germany to destroy the Jews, which is why when they begin to take steps against the Jews, in a sense, it almost resonates with a certain amount of the church where they don't do anything about it because they're already, in a sense, sort of stirred up at a latent low level. They're not Hitler, but they understand where Hitler's coming from. So Germany's blind spot in 1933. January 1933, Adolf Hitler ascends to power in Germany. April 7th, 1933. Now just to give culture or historic context, 1939 is when World War II is going to start. Okay, But the travesties in Germany are going to start long before that. It's just that all the other European nations, starting with Great Britain and France, did nothing to stop it because they didn't want war. Remember, World War I was called the war to end all wars, which means they'd done such a political marketing campaign to say this is the last war we'll ever have, so we're going to throw everything into it. You cannot now justify going back to war. And the people don't want war. America doesn't want war. Great Britain doesn't want war. France doesn't want war. So Hitler takes advantage of that and begins to do horrible things. He begins to violate the Treaty of Versailles. He literally, he's supposed to have 100,000 standing army max. He increases that, I don't know what it was, like four million, right in front of everyone's eyes. He's like defying them. He takes uh, what's called the Rhineland and he moves his soldiers into it. That's part of Germany, but he was not allowed to occupy it with soldiers. Then he takes Austria and no one does anything. Then he takes the Sudetenland, no one does anything. Then he takes Czechoslovakia, no one does anything in all of Europe. The crimes happened long before 1939. His treatment of Jews is long before 1939. In other words, our response is because we felt threatened. America gets into it because we feel threatened. When we're bombed at Pearl Harbor, now it's personal. However, we did nothing uh, before that. So there's a lot of issues that we could self-correct uh, as Americans to say, okay, not the best decision. Yeah, I could see why that wasn't. But this is political stuff, and it's hard for us to sometimes evaluate in hindsight because we see so clearly that this is just wrong. April 7th, 1933, Hitler and the Nazi regime institute the law on the reconstruction of the professional civil service in Germany. So I'm going to, when they, when they issue this law, the third paragraph, which is the next bullet point of this new law is known as the Aryan paragraph, stipulating the removal of Jews from government positions and legal positions in the German government. So if you're Jewish, you're going to be removed out of all government positions, okay? It's, it's not a huge thing, but it's unprecedented, right? So now Jews have no position of authority in government after this is uh, stipulated, and this is called the Aryan Paragraph. April 25th, okay, which is just 18 days later, the law and the overcrowding of German schools and universities, the law against the overcrowding of German schools and universities. We have too many students in the schools. We have an overcrowding of universities. We're going to have to start removing people from the schools. Okay, who, this is all calculated. It's all subtle. It's like the moving, movement of an hour hand on the clock. However, it's all tactical to get Jews out of places of influence. So out of government and now out of schools. Essentially removing all Jews from all positions of educational oversight and influence in German schools. And then May 10th, 1933, books considered un-German, including those by Jewish authors, were destroyed in a nationwide book burning. 
June 30th, 1933. These laws were again broadened to entail that even marriage to a non-Aryan, so if you married a Jew, for instance, you, you were to, it sufficed for your exclusion from careers in government, law, and education because you could be tainted if you're married to a Jew. So now even if you're married to a Jew, you're gonna lose your job in government or in teaching. Or, uh, and so, I mean, this is pretty extreme stuff. What's the church doing? Nothing. In other words, this is a blind spot that Germany didn't even realize it has. You don't know you have a blind spot. That's the, what a blind spot is. It's, you're blind to it. And so as a result, we could look at Germany. We're like, we see clearly. We have 20-20 vision. We're like, that's wrong. Hey, that, that shouldn't happen. Now, I'm not going to say that there weren't any Jews that didn't think that. There were. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of them. And so he is actually going to be a part of what's going to be called the Confessing Church. But we, the Confessing Church is going to make up such a small fraction. I think it was like 0.03% of the church. It was like such a massively small percent of the church are actually going to stand up against Hitler. The rest of them, they go along for the ride. July 1933 through September 15, 1935, due to intense Nazi pressure and Gestapo enforcement, nearly every business, organization, group, and order within the German society effectively had barred the involvement and patronage of Jews. The Jews were barred from the public health system, lost their honorary public offices, were driven from editorial offices and all theater positions as writers, directors, musicians, and actors, and were excluded from all agricultural work as well as medical work. To be a Jew was to be an outcast, removed from normal commerce, and community. September 16, 1935, which is called the Nuremberg Laws, are instituted to officially protect German blood and German honor. I mean, we really need to go out of our way to protect German blood and German honor here, and we, got, we have some disease over here, some impurity over here, to do whatever it takes to remove this Jewish threat to their pure bloodline from their nation. So they want these Jews gone. So before they start exterminating them, they're going to try and just kick them out which you have to say, oh, that's pretty noble, that they're, instead of just killing them, they want to kick them out. And so you're going to see in this little stretch of time, which, which is going to be the start of the war even, it's going to say six years of hell for the Jews was to only commence the beginnings of something even worse. In these six years of social hell, socializing of any form with Jews stopped in Germany. Talk about social distancing. If you even socialize with a Jew, you're going to be treated as a Jew. And everyone knows how the Jews treated. So as a result, if you want to have any normalcy to your life, ignore the Jew. Even if you see him coming, even if you were best friends with him before, don't talk with him. It'll be to your own loss if you do. You see how they're being treated? You don't want that for you. See how no one goes to their stores? They won't even shop in a Jew's store. As a result, if you're a businessman, you better stay away from Jews. If you help the Jew, well, your life will be destroyed. So you can feel the social pressure. Blind spots, guys. This is amazing. So it says, uh, shopping in any Jewish store ceased, causing a complete financial breakdown of the previous, previously rather wealthy Jewish community. Most Jews, if enjoying any employment at all, were only able to function in menial jobs for paltry pay. While getting out of Germany and immigrating to another country also became an ever-increasing problem for the Jews. So if you're a Jew in Germany, what's your number one thought? I'm out of here. I mean, this is the worst possible situation. So look at what uh, Hitler's government does. To leave required the Jews to pay a tax of near 90% of their wealth upon departing Germany. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we, you need to leave. And when you leave, you leave all your wealth with us. Add to this that by 1938, there were almost no countries on earth willing to receive these Jewish immigrants. In December of 1941, in the midst of World War II, Hitler declared that since Europe had no reasonable means by which to deport these Jews, that they would all need to be exterminated. So he made it basically impossible for them to get out and then came to the conclusion, well, we have to get rid of them. I mean, they're a plight to our society. It's, it's wrecking our pure German bloodline. Hey, you guys are with me, aren't you? We're going to need to exterminate them. I, I don't see any other uh, means of dealing with this problem. The total number of Jews murdered during the resulting Holocaust is estimated at 5.5 to 6 million people. That's a blind spot. Now, in the midst of this, this is a World War II blind spot. That's what's so ironic about this, that we as Americans can see so clearly across the Atlantic over into Europe and see this travesty. 
And there's other travesties that are going to take place in World War II. This is just one of them. And this is just one dimension of what Hitler did. The way he's going to treat the communists, uh, you're going to see even more deaths on that front, which is an extraordinary thought. But that's under the banner of war, so it doesn't get credited up the same way. America's blind spot in 1942. We have a blind spot? We do. See, something is going to happen that is going to be such a travesty and it's going to create such a rage that it's going to actually blind us to some of the behaviors that we are going to perform. Now, I actually can get inside the shoes of Roosevelt. I can get inside the shoes of the government and I know why they did what they did. However, in looking back, you recognize that some of those decisions were not wise. The seething anger commences. So Isoroku Yamamoto, uh, who is going to be sort of the head of the Japanese war machine, after they attack Pearl Harbor and he sees the response of the Americans, I mean, this is ultimately going to lead to the destruction of Japan. They're, the American, no one at the time believed America actually could show military strength. They thought they were just so, we were just so fat and happy over here, stuck in our own little world. I mean, we're, we're, just, we're in the Great Depression at this time, by the way, guys. I mean, we're not in a strong position as a country. The Japanese are, are gambling, and they want to take out our naval power in the Pacific because they want to take control of the Pacific. It's actually, it makes sense. When I was growing up, it didn't make any sense. Why would Japan pick a fight with us? I mean, that was my, my thought. It's like, that was a dumb move. Well, at the time, it wasn't a dumb move. At the time, it was like, hey, this is one of their main naval uh, ports and naval bases, and this is where most of their naval strength is. Let's take it out. And if we take it out, we rule the Pacific because the American manufacturing system was not up and going to create more ships at a fast enough rate. The Japanese could dominate the Pacific. It makes sense. So it also makes sense from the American side to be horrified because Japan had promised neutrality. They weren't going to, there was no threat, no menace that they were going to stick against us. And they surprised us. And it was a violation of every verbal agreement, every written agreement that they had with us. You can understand why as Americans you would be upset. I mean, this is not right. So the outrage is going to lead to a blind spot. Blinding agents. There's blinding agents that we all can have. And so I'm going to name a few of them. Anger will blind us, and we will do things in anger that don't agree with what we know to do when we are not angry. That's why the scriptures say, be angry and sin not. Anger isn't your problem. It's that it can blind you because there's a fleshly anger and there's a spirit anger. And when you allow a fleshly anger to control you, it dims your senses and your reasoning capacity. And you can find yourself doing things that you actually, in a sane moment, would th think to be a wrong maneuver. Fear, fear can blind us and we can do things when we're fearful that we would never do otherwise. Disgust and outrage. Okay, now what is happening in our news cycle today is attempting to catch us in these blinding agents. Whether it's purposeful, I don't know if the news, you know, some people would say, you know, oh, of course, the news system knows exactly what they're doing. They want to blind us. I, you know, okay, I'm not going to make any commentary on that. However, it is blinding us. In other words, the news cycle is set to addict us to a pattern. And when you get caught in an anger cycle, an outrage cycle, which is very common for many Americans right now, whether you, whichever political persuasion you are, if you're on the liberal side, you're in the cycle of getting mad at Donald Trump. And I mean, it's just, it can feed you. The news cycle is dishing out plenty of reasons. Of course, some of us might say, I think uh, Trump is actually in on that trying to get them outraged. <laughs> Sometimes we wonder, right? But on the opposite side, it's the attacks against Donald Trump. If you're on the conservative side, then you're just the, the, the lying media. Can you believe they're making up this stuff? And so you get caught in this cycle. It's a meat grinder actually for our soul. It is unhealthy. And get this, it blinds us. It blinds us to Christian behavior and to love. You know who we're supposed to be loving right now? those that oppose us. We're supposed to be serving them, going after their soul. Well, you don't do a very good job of going after someone's soul when you want them dead. And that's exactly the bait that is taking place inside of us. These are blinding agents. 
Okay, so I have not even told you what this great civil rights violation was yet, have I? But I've, I've baited us to the point where, I don't know if you're guessing or not, but here, here it is. We're going to start unveiling it. So Lieutenant General John L. DeWitt is going to be this key character that is going to make a proposal unto our nation, unto uh, Franklin Roosevelt, of how we need to respond socially on our side. Because there's, a, there's something called the fifth uh, element. There's this... Uh, this deal within uh, every nation which has hostile entities like spy networks. And the Japanese actually are known for having spy networks. And so I can totally get inside the mindset of this. When they were going to invade the Pacific uh, Islands, they had, lo they had their spies down there ahead of time that were scouting out the land, gave intricate maps. And then when the Japanese came in, those people all came into power positions. And so as a result, you can understand why our country would have a response. But General, General John L. DeWitt is going to say he believed that the Japanese civilian population within the U.S. represented America's greatest threat. Therefore, this threat must be controlled. So now let's, let's put ourselves in 1941, late 1941, early 1942 America, you're upset with the Japanese. The Americans were so upset with the Japanese that they wanted to just blow up you know, the, the Japanese uh, island if they could. I mean, they would destroy every J Japanese if they could. That's how angry uh, the American people were. And so they wanted revenge. They wanted payback. And so what we're going to talk about, I, don't, I have a message at least somewhat sketched out called the Doolittle Raiders, which is going to be uh, the America's retaliation uh, on uh, Japan. I mean, this is a big deal. And all of those, those guys knew that they were likely not going to come back alive. And they're like, let me in. I want to be a part of that. The payback on the Japanese. It's like, give up your life to pay back the Japanese. I mean, this is very uh, cogent thinking for all of those soldiers. So the Japanese civilian population within the U.S. represented America's greatest threat. Therefore, this threat must be controlled. He proposed a plan of aggressive containment. His original plan included not just those of Japanese descent, but also those of German and Italian descent. I mean, it makes sense. If you're going to contain people, the German, uh, Germans and the Italians that are in our country, yeah, they're American citizens, but, oh, you're from Germany. You could be pro-German. That means you could undermine our culture, our society here. You could be a spy. And so if you're German and Italian, I mean, I feel bad for you during World War II. That had to be hard. But if you're Japanese... This is really hard, okay? The Japanese are the focal points of the American uh, anathema, the American angst, the American anger. And so it says, however, the idea of rounding up people of European descent was not popular in a country made up in good part of European immigrants. So it's just like, we're gonna round up all the German and all the Italian descendants. I mean, we're gonna, we, we don't, it's gonna be like half the country will have to be part in containment. So as a result, because of the political side of that, they didn't go the German or the Italian route, but the Japanese presence in the United States was just over 100,000. And so as a result, these are citizens, by the way. These are citizens with rights under the Constitution. Remember all men are created equal? I mean, remember all that stuff? All of that is gonna go to the wind. Now during war, you sometimes have to make extreme decisions. So I get that. In other words, I've tried to get inside of Roosevelt's shoes in this, and I can understand why he's going to sign this executive order. I really get it, even though it's, it's really hard for me to agree and to swallow what is about to happen. So Attorney General Francis Biddle is going to plead with President Roosevelt that DeWitt's proposal of mass arresting and imprisonment of citizens of Japanese descent was not required for public safety. He felt that smaller and more targeted security measures would be, better, would be a better approach. But even with Biddle's pleading, the president signed Executive Order 9066. So February 1942, something known as prohibited areas is defined. So in the state of Washington, in the state of Oregon and in the state of California, these are prohibited areas for a ja someone of Japanese descent. If you show even one sixteenth Japanese in your blood, you cannot be in these prohibited areas, which means you have to move elsewhere. 
Okay, this is going to create a domino effect because these poor Japanese that have businesses and everything right along because they're coming over and that's, that's why if you go up to the state of Washington, like in Seattle, you see a lot of Asian, right? That's because this is their entry point and you tend to gravitate where there's others like you, if there's others that speak your language. And so as a result, they're in clusters. They're not spread out through, throughout the United States. They're all along the Pacific coastline. And so these become prohibited areas for all of the Japanese, but this is where they all live. And so this obviously is creating some havoc for the Japanese community. And so in, in February of 1942, these Japanese Americans are forced to leave these prohibited areas and find refuge in other states. So this is, I, I don't know if you see the parallel with what happened in, in Nazi Germany. It's different because we're not trying to kill them. We're not seeing them as, the, uh, as people deserving of death, but we definitely are concerned about them. No one is trusted. Could you imagine being Japanese in this time in America? It couldn't be easy. I mean, if you're German in the United States, you can maybe hide it, you know, change your name a little or, you know, mispronounce it uh, when you say it. Uh, however, this is, it's not easy to hide your Asian ethnicity. March 1942, the other states reject these dislocated Japanese. We don't want them in our state. So you have literally, when someone shows up in your state, the community will blackball them. Like, we, you're not welcome here. And so they would not allow them there. Where, where do the Japanese go? They have no place to go. And the state governors start declaring, we will not receive Japanese here. If you're Japanese in, in 1942, what's going on in your mind? Uh, I mean, so much for the Declaration of Independence. So much for the Constitution. You have no rights all of a sudden. None. You have zero rights if you have Japanese blood. One sixteenth and you are literally without rights. Uh, it's just a fascinating time of history. So other states reject these dislocated Japanese and the citizens of the states treat everyone of Japanese descent as hostiles and as less than human. We don't want them was the national mind at the time. So what is this gonna lead to? It's gonna lead to in March of 1942, the six days warning is going to be issued. And what that means is the Japanese, those of even one sixteenth or more, need to dispose of everything they own. They can only have something that they can carry. Could you imagine if that happened to you? Okay, you have to dispose of everything. You have six days to do it. So if you had a business, if you had a house, furniture, good luck trying to do, do this in six days. And so you have six days and then you're going to be taken. You don't have a clue where but you're gonna be taken somewhere and you can only have that which you can carry. So anyone who was at least 116th Japanese was taken to internment camps in remote locations across the United States. April of 1942, 17,000 Japanese children are put in these camps. Now, I can understand, okay, maybe you know that one guy who sort of has that sneaky eye to him, that one Japanese guy, you know, he just sort of looks like, he seems pro-Japanese, he always has a flag up for the Japanese in his, in his grocery store. I, I'm concerned about him. Well, you have 17,000 children that are actually going to be in internment camps. Now, granted, I, if, if I was gonna be put in an internment camp, I'd prefer to have my kids with me, but you just sort of see that even these kids have no rights, which is also an interesting phenomenon. All in all, oh, by the way, and with thousands of elderly and severely handicapped are going to be put in these internment camps because it's the fact that you're Japanese that is the problem. All in all, around 117,000 American citizens of Japanese descent were imprisoned for the duration of World War II. So I get it. I understand the fear and the anxiety and the trepidation of what these Japanese could do. However, I'm with Attorney General Biddle I think there may be a better way to do this. So these are just a few pictures uh, to show you. But the day after Pearl Harbor, this guy who owned a grocery store is a graduate, I want to say from Cal Berkeley, no, the University of California. And uh, so he's an astute citizen, you know, well-educated. Pearl Harbor is bombed. This is what he sticks on his, this is a sign he sticks up the next day, Right. Now the sold sign is gonna show up a little later. Why? Because he's gonna lose it all and put it, be put in an internment camp. And he's immediately like, hey, I'm an American. I've been here for generations. Look, I'm not, I have no issue. I mean, I'm not like pro-Japan just because I'm Japanese. And he's gonna lose everything. These are the internment camps 
there was no space. They were packed in. It's interesting because I grew up and uh, I would go visit my, my grandparents out in Idaho. And I remember hearing that this used to be an internment camp for the Japanese. It made no, and they worked my, my grandpa's fields, uh, which is like just weird in thinking back uh, through that. But it's like, huh, uh, my mom would have been one years old at this time. And my grandpa is a farmer. Uh, out in Idaho, and there's these internment camps that are right there. So that was one of the spots that they, they put them was up in near Parma, Idaho, of all places. And uh, so I don't know where this one is, but you can definitely see uh, what, is, what life would be like if you went from what you have now to living right there. And obviously, you know, with barbed wire and various things, they're not wanting you to leave. This isn't freedom as you've once known it. This is concentration camp, maybe without the beatings. <laughs> In other words, if I'm going to compare this to Hitler, it doesn't even compare, okay? However, it's a blind spot that in the midst of it, here, if you were to study Franklin Roosevelt and his reasoning behind wanting to engage in this, it's the barbarities. It's for freedom's sake. It's for liberty's sake that we want to have a free world. That's what's just ironic about all of this, this twist on these things. Here's just a little girl with all that she can carry uh, in her hands. And so they would always have a tag on them. And it reminds me of Germany. That's what's so weird. If you study Germany, you get the, the uh, Star of David on you. And it was, it was just so similar. And this is, it's weird that this is in our own country. Uh, so here's an internment camp. It looks like it, it, it could even be the Idaho one, but I, I can't tell you that it is. That's what it looked like. Uh, here's a whole family uh, that is being taken. In other words, these are... Uh, these are upstanding, normal people. I, I don't know their background. They could have been spies for all I know. I can't speak for them. At the same time, you feel for them. As Christians, I want us to be thinking as Christians. I'm not, I'm not trying to promote liberalism uh, towards this because when you start saying caring, you know, the bleeding heart, oh, that's, that's liberals. Well, as far as I'm concerned, Christians should be the ones of compassion. We're the ones that care for those around us. We're the ones that will break the jaws of the evildoer and remove the prey from their teeth. We're the ones that visit the widow in her plight and the orphan in his need. We shouldn't look elsewhere. We shouldn't look to government programs for that. That's us. And so as a result, where are we in this situation? Where are we right now in 1942? How are we responding to this? It's interesting thinking that they worked for my grandpa and who was Obendorf, that's his last name, German, which is extra weird uh, in this. It's fascinating to think if all Germans were rounded up, <laughs> where, where I would be right now. Like how that could have changed my history too, because I'm German. Uh, and so the, the, the different dimensions to this story are so interesting for me. This, this story is hard to swallow, but it sort of shows the ironies of it. This is a picture of a family that's in an internment camp. And so these, the three, the dad, the mom, and the, and the son are in an internment camp, and they're holding a picture of their other son who is fighting for America uh, in the Pacific against the Japanese. Uh, so you follow the, the weird logic flows in this. Are, it's, it's quite extraordinary. Dealing with our blind spots. So how do we deal with our blind spots? We need to go to the Word of God and not to the passion of our disgust. We are being baited by the enemy right now. I'm not even going to say by the liberal media. By the enemy, we're being baited. And I'm not calling the, the liberal media the enemy. So don't try and tie those two together. I'm saying this is a spiritual battle. And I'd say the liberals are being baited too. It's to try and create division and divide, segregation. This is how the devil works. He wants to show you all the bad qualities of those around you so that you want them dead. This is what leads to wars. This is what leads to extermination camps. This is what leads to concentration camps. This is what leads to all of this nonsense. We as Christians do not function as the world functions. So therefore, if there is a Japanese internment camp, we go and serve in it. We wash feet in it. We minister the love of Jesus in that very environment. We have to remember Christ's model and not allow ourselves, because we have our little groups right now. Most of us in here are probably on the conservative end of the spectrum. We have our groups that are very detestable to us. And that if you were to have a vote on, could, you could have them removed from the United States completely. 
you would actually be like, you know what, on the, on the ballot, if it said you could remove this people group from the United States and they would be no longer welcome here. Huh, that's an interesting one. Well, that's what Hitler was doing in removing the Jews. He was saying, oh, we'll let them out. Oh, they can't get out. No one wants them. I guess we have to kill them. In other words, it was the same mentality that started it, as opposed to saying, you know what, we're in a mission field here. Well, I have, I have a mission field right by me. I don't need to go way over there. I have it right here. whole bunch of people that have rejected Christ and actually want me dead. This is a dream. What do you think you're going to find when you go elsewhere? You think everyone's going to be pleasant and nice where you go, where they're pagan nations and they, they have false gods? In other words, we have the same issue here. So let's remember that we are Christians first, not Americans first. We are Christians. We represent the love of Jesus as our primary agenda. This is an amazing finishing touch to this. So you have, here's a lady who grew up never understanding liberty, never understanding the blessings of, uh, of a constitution and the Bill of Rights. And she is going to find friendship with a group of people that I, I don't know if, if you would have ever studied the Quakers. My grandma Obendorf was a Quaker, which is another interesting twist to this whole thing. So German, Quaker, and we've got a lot of mixture of things going on here. Quakers almost as good as colored. They call themselves friends, and you can trust them every time. That's the way I want to be right now. I want that opposition, that people group that are being spurned, to know that they can always come to us as Christians and know that we'll be friends, and you can trust us every time. Father, I pray that you would remove our blind spots, that you would awaken us to where we may be overlooking things. Lord, don't allow us to continue forward without seeing clearly. I ask that you would awaken us as the confessing church in Germany. Lord Jesus, that we would see clearly in the midst of a crisis and that we would not allow the political winds to shape our attentions, our affections, our thinking, our living. Lord Jesus, we trust you and we live for you. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.